I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Okay, so today we're going to talk to a couple of amazing writers about the recent unrest and protests in Hong Kong. Normally, I manage to find a way to wedge in some, like, if not Kansas City connection, at least some personal connection to the subject of an episode. And for this one, though, I I don't know. Have you been to you Hong Kong, Suki? I don't got a lot. Have you been there? <laughs> I've transited through the airport, and I have friends who have lived there and friends from there, but I haven't really been. Okay. Yeah, I definitely haven't. I mean, I've never really been anywhere in Asia, period. Oh, my but, God, such a loss. Yeah. Well, I mean, give me some days off, and I'll give it a TPD. try. Happy to go. <laughs> Uh, But then I was reading this great New York Times piece on the Hong Kong protests, and I came across a sentence about a 20-year-old protester named Crystal Yip. And here's the sentence. She's usually at the front lines of street clashes with the police, snuffing out tear gas canisters, building makeshift barricades, and providing cover to protesters who hurl bricks. And I thought, Ferguson. I mean, that happened in my home state. Right. And I guess what we're hoping to do here, as we would in any FNF episode, is to make those protests feel less distant to our listeners, except for the ones in China or Hong Kong, where we do have listeners. And to do that, we've invited two writers to talk to us who've been intensely involved in what's happening in Hong Kong. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to fiction writer and essayist Xu Xi. But right now, we are so happy to talk with the co-author of that great New York Times piece I was quoting above, Javier C. Hernandez. Javier is a China correspondent for the New York Times based in Beijing. Since joining the Times in 2008, he has covered education, financial markets, and New York City politics. Javier, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. 
Okay, so I know the story because we've known each other for about a dozen years, but maybe you could just fill our listeners in on how you became a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and how long you've been in Beijing and how many reporters the Times has there. Uh, I was a longtime correspondent in New York, um, but I had always dreamed of being a foreign correspondent. I spent some time in Latin America and felt like um, the best and most interesting stories, uh, from my perspective, were overseas. And so China appealed to me um, primarily because it was it was so such an enigma, so different from anything I'd ever covered before. And so in 2014, um, I told the Times I was interested in going, and they agreed to send me over for language training initially and then as a reporter. And it was a, an awkward moment in our relationship with the government in China. We had just published an investigative series about the hidden financial wealth of Chinese leaders, and the government was not happy about that. And so we had been frozen out. The government was denying visas to the Times. And so I was over in Asia, over in China initially, then Hong Kong, and kind of waiting for a visa for a, for a long time, um, but finally got there in 2015. And so now we, uh, you know, I work in the Beijing Bureau where we have uh, probably about eight correspondents, including the business correspondents. And it's a bureau that's grown significantly as the interest in China has grown and as the Times commitment to China reporting has grown. My understanding is that the Hong Kong protests began as the demonstrations in March and April of 2019 against the Fugitive Offenders Amendment Bill, which has a longer name than that, but I'm just going to call it that for now, which, which then crested into some huge demonstrations in June. Could you talk to us about that bill and why it sparked those protests in the first place? Was the bill the only thing that the protesters cared about, or was it just a convenient placeholder for a number of other concerns? Well, I think to understand it, you really have to go back to 1997, which is when Hong Kong was returned to China um, from British rule. And at that time, there were a lot of promises made. And one of those promises was that one day Hong Kong would have uh, full free elections and be able to elect its own chief executive, which is the name of their leader there, and the entire uh, legislature. So that was a promise and made so, by the Chinese government? That's correct. Okay. That was made in a, in a joint agreement uh, with, the, with the British back in 1997. Uh, there was a timetable for this, for this promise, and it, it was going to you know, go all the way into 2047. Um, but there were some uh, distinct... Uh, markers along the way that would move Hong Kong in this direction. And so uh, for a lot of people, you know, we've, we've watched for the past 20 plus years and uh, Hong Kong didn't really move entirely in that direction. There were efforts to open things up a bit more to, to free elections, but Beijing always maintained its hand behind the scenes. Um, you know, th there was always this tight grip on, on what Hong Kong was allowed to do. And so uh, for a lot of these protests that, that erupted this summer, they're looking to 1997 as, as the source of a lot of their anger. Um, they feel that Beijing hasn't lived up to these promises. And so for a lot of these young people, especially who came to the streets this summer, uh, the primary complaint is that Beijing hasn't lived up to its promises and they want uh, Hong Kong to, to really move in an entirely opposite direction. And the bill itself was about sort of basically about extradition, I guess? Yeah, exactly. So uh, the, the leader of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, 
she proposed this bill in February. And the idea was uh, Hong Kong is going to allow people to be extradited to China, to a bunch of other countries. Her justification was the case of a man in Taiwan who had who was accused of killing his girlfriend and then fled to Hong Kong um, to avoid any kind of prosecution. Um, as you know, a lot of people look at that a bit skeptically and think that um, Ms. Lam, who is, who is uh, seen as, as pro-Beijing, uh, had China in mind. And of course, the, the big concern is that Chinese courts are still almost entirely controlled by the Communist Party. And so for a lot of Hong Kong residents, they worried that they would have phony charges brought against them um, and that they would be sent back to the mainland and they didn't want to have that kind of a, a judiciary um, face those kinds of judicial consequences under a Communist Party-controlled system. And so that's why a lot of these people uh, really opposed this bill and then were willing to, in, in June especially, uh, come to the streets and, and make their demands heard. Um, so Javier, I wonder if you can give us a little bit more background. I think you know, the last time that I remember Hong Kong being prominently in the news, um, I was reading about the Umbrella Movement, and you mentioned 1997 and thinking about the Umbrella Movement and that was in 2014, recent- right? When he was first right. getting there? Yeah, okay. I think so. And yeah. um, I think my impression of the protesters in both, uh, at both, in both time periods is that the protesters, are, many of them are very young. And it's interesting that their complaints are dating to 1997, this sense of Hong Kong history that they have. Can you tell us how, how, do the, how does the Umbrella Movement relate to what's happening now? Well, the Umbrella Movement, uh, for all the attention it received did not really achieve much. Um, It was a 79-day series of protests where people occupied parts of downtown uh, Hong Kong. And the demands, sure, there was a similar current of of concern about Beijing's uh, influence over the city. You know, there were complaints about uh, the lack of a free voice, the lack of uh, transparency in the city government. Um, but I think what many people these days would say is that it, it all amounted to really not that much. And the protests these, this time around, I think these protests and these protesters have really learned from that movement. Um, they've decided that they're no longer going to host these uh, broad sit-ins, which, um, while they attracted a lot of attention, were also very disruptive to the city. And I think... Um, turned many city residents away from these protests, made them feel like it wasn't uh, a cause that they they could um, join. And so the protests these times around, um, you've seen a kind of what they call leaderless and and more democratic uh, movement. Um, that this time around, people are voting on on the best tactics. They are voting on the goals they want to pursue. They are. Uh, trying to use social media and encrypted chat forums to discuss strategy, to discuss, to spread um, anthems, to spread uh, protest signs. They're using airdrop on the subways to uh, pass out, you know, these electronic flyers. So they've learned a lot, I think, in, in, from that movement that was seen as, as not entirely successful, or at least for the protesters, um, not the model they wanted to follow this time around. But yet, maybe in a certain way, sort of preparing them for this. Yeah, is that fair? I think it, 
I think you, you could say that, yeah, they, they really uh, um, tested a lot of the messages back then. They tested um, the tactics and gauged the public reaction to those tactics. And this time they've been able to have much more stamina, I'd say. They've, you know, this is the, these are the most, um, I would say, uh, sweeping and and perhaps in you know in some ways surprising you know they've had several kind of surprising semi victories along the way that I don't think you would have seen uh, five years ago. So um, Whitney mentioned Ferguson earlier, and and just thinking about you know the scale of the protests, when I see the pictures and and the images from Hong Kong, they're just incredibly striking. What is it like? I mean, what you're describing sounds really hard to cover. What is it like to be present at these protests? What does it sound like and smell like? And you, know, you were at the Hong Kong airport for one of the very largest protests in August. Have you have you been at a lot of these? And what has that been like to write about? Well, I remember the very first protest I covered in Hong Kong, which I think was June 16th. And this was the one that um, captured headlines around the world because there were two million people just uh, flooding the streets of Hong Kong. And I remember getting to uh, outside a mall early in the day and just standing there and, and looking over the edge of, uh, you know, Hong Kong's a very um, hilly city and looking over the edge and looking down and you could see uh, just swarms of people moving in all directions. And I had never witnessed anything like that. It was um, orderly in so many ways. You know, people were uh, willing to part, part when they saw um, traffic coming their way, or if an ambulance passed by, or police came on on motorcycle, the you would sort of see this this uh, mass line of people just open up and and allow them to pass through, and people were, uh, you know, very just um, civil toward each other. I'd say yeah, I remember seeing families, lots of families, people who brought their children, hoping that they they could inspire them to have some sense of political participation and democracy. It was just um, this amazing display of protest. And to me, I'd never seen anything even in the United States like that. Um, so we have a lot of listeners who are writers and journalists. Uh, so I was just wondering, when you get ready to like, and today I'm going to go cover these protests, you know, what do you bring with you? What do you wear? What do you do? I mean, I'm assuming you have a notebook and a record and, a, and, and something to record with, but what else? Well, um, I carry a huge backpack because we have to carry a lot of protective equipment now. Um, that includes helmets. It includes uh, masks that help us deal with tear gas. Oh, really? Do you, do you, have you used those things? Do you have to put them on or are they just like a requirement? Yeah, we've, we've, um, we've used them. I've, I've used them. Um, there are a few cases where I've been near tear gas, but never anything like uh, some of these messier incidents when they shot tear gas into subway stations into enclosed spaces. Yikes. But we carry them mostly protectively, but certainly in recent weeks. Um, like Men in Black, like you get a little issue like <laughs> thing from the New York Times, like you get to go in a special room. Does the New York Times have a queue? <laughs> we, uh, we have a tech manager, all Kevin right. Roach, who's, awesome. who's very, very good at all of this. And uh, he, uh, he also, his claim to fame is that... Uh, uh, he was photographed by one of the pro-Beijing camps because he was out in the field bringing us equipment. And uh, part of the thread of uh, 
China's skepticism of these protests has been that the West is behind them, that the CIA is is secretly financing and orchestrating all of this. And so Kevin had been uh, photographed and featured by one of the pro-Beijing outlets because they accused him of being um, a spy, essentially, who was out there when, in fact, he was a journalist helping other journalists. Mm. Um, So uh, we do have, you know, that expertise in our bureau and they make sure that we're well equipped. Um, And we've certainly had cases where that equipment has been helpful, especially some of my colleagues who have been out there um, uh, late at night in some of these protests that turn chaotic. Um, are they but, dangerous? I mean, has anybody gotten hurt? What, you know, how, how does that, how's, how's that played out? There have been some Hong Kong journalists who, who have been injured. Um, you know, we've, we've been careful. We've had a lot of equipment. We, you know, the, the most important thing to us is, um, to get the story and to maintain some safe distance. So Hong Kong's actually a relatively good place to cover protests because there are many, um, vantage points from footbridges and buildings, and you can kind of move back when things get chaotic. But certainly in some of these cases, you're standing at the front lines and and you don't know what will happen. It can get very tense. You can hear protesters chanting um, slogans against the police, hurling insults at them. You can see the police kind of preparing to charge with their shields and batons. And, and as a journalist, you just really have to I think first and foremost, think about personal safety and of yourself as well as your colleagues. And we have so many terrific, um, you know, local journalists who assist us, or freelancers, et cetera, who have been out there. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Ezra Chung, who's been one of our uh, terrific uh, Hong Kong journalists who's helped us on this story. So when you say we, are you reporting in groups of three or four? Are you on your own? And, and did you have to learn a new kind of personal risk management as you were doing this? Is this a new, a new kind of reporting skill for you? Certainly. I mean, I've covered other kind of violent situations, but this one, uh, I guess, you know, it, it's, it has, I've never been in a situation where you're out there so frequently in, in violent or potentially chaotic situations. Um, we do often work in pairs or in, in small groups um, just to make sure that everyone's safe and, and cared for. Um, but we also, I think, you know, we've, we've used uh, technology to help us keep track of each other. And certainly our WhatsApp groups and other groups are uh, constantly um, flowing with messages about where people are and checking in to make sure everyone's okay. So it's, you know, our, our editor, Jillian Wong, has been the coordinator and really the guardian of all of the reporters here. And um, while these aren't, you know, I I don't want to leave you with the impression that these protests are always violent. You know, there's certainly the vast majority of of activity we've seen so far has been nonviolent, peaceful protests. But certainly there have been these situations where things have suddenly escalated. And in those cases, um, we want to make sure that, that everyone's okay. So the other thing that I wanted to ask was you were, I mean, you mentioned, right, these are leaderless protests. And that seems to me like a particular also, I mean, it's a narrative challenge to write about. These protests are so dramatic, but so much of the way that um, news reporting of this kind sometimes 
the way that people have historically covered movements, right? The writers writing about those movements have latched onto, you know, the characters driving those movements. So what does it mean to write about collective action of this kind to depict how, you know, in some ways these protesters have been inventive? And how do you write about that when they are purposely also doing this in a way that maybe defies the narratives we might traditionally impose on it? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think, uh, you know, one one thing that I go back to is on July 1st, I was covering the protests and this was a key moment in the in the scene because um, the legislature was stormed by protesters and they smashed the, the glass doors on the outside and went inside and vandalized official portraits and the legislative chamber and uh, it was probably the turning point in the protests. And what I remember from that was that a lot of people at that moment said this movement uh, couldn't survive, that um, they'd crossed the line, that nobody would be able to uh, explain why they had turned to violence. And um, a lot of it was uh, difficult to cover because in that moment you suddenly have uh, you know, you think, who are the leaders of this movement? Who is going to speak out for this movement? And there weren't really any sources you could call or anybody in particular who was willing to speak. I mean, it was this collective voice. And the day after I covered those protests, um, my email uh, alerts started popping up every minute or so because the protesters had organized an email writing campaign. And so suddenly my inbox was filled with you know, 500, 600 letters from Hong Kong citizens um, commenting on my coverage of that July 1st event. And it made me just realize the extent to which uh, these protesters were so well organized and had kind of um, given this collective voice its, its uh, the, the prominence it deserved in their view. So for us, I think we've just made an effort to really uh, highlight the, the the varied faces of these protesters. So we speak with, we do stories about Cathay Pacific pilots and, and flight attendants and others who have been on the front lines and have sometimes been fired because of their activism. We've spoken with um, religious figures who have been a, a backbone of these protests. We've spoken with lawmakers, with students. Um, it's really been an interesting reporting challenge because you wanna make sure that you're featuring prominently uh, people of all backgrounds and voices and not just uh, one group of people who are, you know, claiming to be the leaders of a movement. Well, one of the things that reminds me of is the Occupy Wall Street movement of 2011, which, you know, there are some there are some com- comparable concerns between that movement and the, and the Hong Kong protesters who are also concerned with high rents and low wages and income inequality. Yet one of the offsided problems with Occupy was that it was too democratic, didn't have clear leaders and then didn't have a clear list of demands, you know, and so and in the end sort of fizzled out, it seems like, you know, I'm wondering, is that a danger for these protesters? How are they doing in terms of leadership and clear demands? It's definitely a danger. I mean, I think for a lot of them, they, uh, you know, sometimes there are moments where it seems like they, they would benefit from a leader or uh, some sense of a group of leaders that um, could speak uh, for them. But at the same time, I think they see it as their strength. I'm reminded 
you know, recently there was a, an anthem that was composed, a Hong Kong anthem, and it kind of epitomized the success of this leaderless movement because they were able, you know, to, to use the expertise of an anonymous internet user who um, composed an anthem. You know, Hong Kong has the Chinese anthem, but a lot of these protesters don't identify with mainland China, and so they turn their backs when it's played. And so this composer came up with his very own Hong Kong anthem. Okay, so um, Javier, um, we've talked about how this movement is leaderless, but you did uh, a profile of Roy Kwong on July 4th. We'd love for you to read from it for us. So this is a story I did on July 4th. As protesters smashed their way into Hong Kong's legislature this week, a young politician rushed to the front lines with a desperate plea. The politician, Roy Kwong, a lawmaker who had been a driving force behind protests sweeping the city, was trying to stop a small group of demonstrators from ramming a metal cart through the front doors of the legislative complex. We are trying to protect you, Mr. Kwong, 36, shouted into a megaphone, jumping up and down as he pleaded with demonstrators. There are no official leaders in Hong Kong's protests against an unpopular extradition bill that has brought to the surface deep-seated anxieties about Beijing's grip over the territory. But Mr. Kwong, a longtime advocate who is also a romance novelist, has emerged as a leading force for moderation and a hero for the city's youth, who have nicknamed him God Kwong. After the attack on the legislature, he is now a key figure in the effort to hold together one of Hong Kong's most potent political movements in recent years. On one hand, Mr. Kwong is seeking to reassure a core group of young protesters whose vandalism of the legislature highlighted their disillusionment with politicians as a whole, that he is on their side. On the other, he is trying to persuade the broader public that the demands and tactics of the protesters, even at their most extreme, are legitimate. To his critics, Mr. Kwong is a zealot fueling distrust between young people and the political establishment. To his fans, he is a nimble tactician, unafraid of standing up to Beijing and determined to protect those who speak out. These students are my comrades, my brothers, my family, Mr. Kwong said during a recent interview in his office at the Legislative Council, where before Monday's siege, he had been sleeping in case protesters who often camped out there clashed with the police. I don't want to see any blood. Mr. Kwong said he did not consider himself a leader of the protests, which began in early June in opposition to a bill that would allow criminal suspects in Hong Kong, a semi-autonomous territory, to be extradited for trial in mainland Chinese courts. But Mr. Kwong, a professed admirer of Abraham Lincoln, who races around the city in a t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers, has assumed the role of peacemaker, foot soldier, and guardian at critical moments. When a man last month threatened to jump from the top of a shopping mall in protest, Mr. Kwong rushed to the scene with a loudspeaker to plead with him to reconsider. When demonstrators considered storming the headquarters of the police at a demonstration in mid-June, he urged them to avoid taking unnecessary risks and possibly getting arrested. On Monday, when a small group of protesters charged the legislature, undermining weeks of peaceful protests, he faced a new test. Mr. Kwong, along with several other pro-democracy lawmakers, attempted to persuade the mass protesters to walk away, arguing that their actions would have little impact given that the building was largely empty. But the protesters pushed back, dismissing the politicians as useless and resuming their destruction. 
Hundreds of thousands had marched peacefully on Monday in a protest urging the withdrawal of the extradition bill and the resignation of the territory's chief executive, Carrie Lamb, among other demands. But the chaos at the legislature and scenes of protesters spray painting the inner chamber and defacing official portraits shocked the city and raised questions about the credibility of the movement. Mr. Kwong has stopped short of condemning the violence, saying that the protesters are motivated by a love for Hong Kong. The real violence is coming from our government, he said in an interview on Wednesday between meetings with demonstrators. Thank you, Javier. I started comparing the amount of information I had on the Hong Kong protests with the amount of info I had on Trump's quote unquote trade war with China. And despite your best efforts, I feel like I've heard more about the trade war. And I say this only to point out that there seems to be a lot of selective fact and or propaganda consumption going on on both sides. Could you talk about how people in mainland China and President Xi view the United States right now through the lens of these protests and Trump's trade war? Well, there's certainly in China a strong propaganda war going on to convince people that uh, the Hong Kong protests are the work of the United States in an effort to undermine China. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it makes a lot of sense because they're told that uh, America's engaged in this trade war with the sole purpose of stopping China's economic rise and that America wants is, is scared of losing its superpower status. And so uh, you open the newspapers or you turn on social media in uh, China and all you'll see is articles about um, Trump and the trade war and uh, how China must maintain a united front in order to um, beat back these efforts by the United States. And I think, um, you know, a lot of it is, is aimed at this, you know, broader, what they call, um, effort to, to bring about China's national rejuvenation, as President Xi likes to say. And for a lot of these mainlanders, the, the idea that, um, people in Hong Kong would simply come to the streets with political demands, is, is preposterous to them. They feel that Hong Kong has benefited from uh, mainland China's investment. They see Hong Kongers as sort of ungrateful children of mainland China who have, um, you know, become spoiled and uh, disconnected <laughs> from like the mainland. It's like the way Trump uh, views California, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they feel that... Uh, you know, it's time for, you know, I would I would say even among my friends in mainland China, they feel that that if anything, President Xi should take an even more aggressive approach to the situation in Hong Kong. They feel that um, that perhaps even military intervention is justified, uh, that as mainland China uh, goes forward, that uh, we shouldn't tolerate in their view, we shouldn't tolerate any um, dissent or any efforts to stop China's rise. So. Uh, it's an interesting perspective. I think one that you have to, uh, you know, look toward the back toward the Cultural Revolution to fully understand, and the fear of chaos in China. And for a lot of people, you know, they've grown up at a time when their incomes have uh, surged, when China emerged uh, from being one of the poorest countries in the world to now one of the most uh, economically prosperous, and they feel like any kind of um, turn backward or any kind of political debates or protests or challenging of the autocratic system would, would be tantamount to turning back the progress and to pushing China back what, to those speaking days. Speaking of these Hong Kong protesters, 
What about their relationship to the West? I mean, you mentioned that Roy Kwong was a, an admirer of Abraham Lincoln. You wrote another piece back in June that you referenced about the importance of Christianity in the Hong Kong protest movement, which is a fact that if I'm, when I'm looking, I was looking, researching this piece and I saw a bunch of articles on places like Newsmax about this, right? So it's caused conservative news sites in the U.S. to get excited about the movement. And many have pointed out the irony that Hong Kong citizens looking to America and the U.K. to ensure their freedom is, is kind of ironic since they've once been colonies of the U.K., as we were once also. That's right. I mean, for Republicans and China hawks in the United States, I think the situation in Hong Kong has uh, really electrified them in many ways. They feel that it's uh, a clear-cut example of um, China's human rights abuses and China's you know, failure to live up to democratic promises and that the United States should uh, use this as a way to uh, really point out that China uh, isn't following the path that the global community wants it to and that and that we've got to strengthen efforts to push China in the toward the democratic side. Um, but I think you've made an interesting point in that, you know, President Trump hasn't been um, someone who's always brought human rights. We're not exactly leading in, on that subject anymore right now. In, I mean, I'll say that. I don't know what you're allowed well. to say as a reporter, and we don't want to push you to do anything you don't feel comfortable with. But I mean, I will say, you know, like, hey, we don't, you know, that's not an issue for our government anymore. We don't talk about it. You know, you've heard President Trump um, weigh in on the protests in an inconsistent way. Uh, at times he's, you know, seemed to say that, call them riots or to say that China can deal with this on its own. And on other, at other times, um, you hear other administration officials speak a bit more critically of China. So it's, it seems like, if, if anything, there's just not a lot of consistency in that message so far. Um, and I think a lot of the protesters, though, want the United States to bring these this issue of Hong Kong into the trade negotiations. They want Hong Kong to be raised, um, you know, as a they want the Congress to pass a law basically punishing any Chinese officials who um, seem to be involved in in uh, stopping these protests. And there are other efforts that seem to be aimed at getting the United States and other countries to have more of a central role in uh, standing with the protesters and opposing um, Chinese infringements on Hong Kong's autonomy. So, yeah, I mean, this all sounds very, I mean, it's interestingly and weirdly familiar to me. Javier, you've heard me talk about Sri Lankan politics probably a lot over the years. And, I mean, it's just sort of the way that, um, I don't know, you sometimes hear some leaders in the global south say, you know, that human rights slash democracy are a Western imposition, which I personally feel like erases a long history of, of human rights in the global south. Um, and you're sort of pointing a little bit in your last answer to where everything is headed. The Fugitive Offenders Bill that we started talking about was withdrawn on September 4th by Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam, but the protests are still going on. So can you tell us a little bit about the current state of things on, on today, uh, Friday, September 13th, and, and where uh, the political situation in Hong Kong is going six months, a year, five years from now? It's a big question, but I think in the short term, we have to look at October 1st. And October 1st is a big day in China because it's the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And so you'll have this split screen sense on October 1st because in Beijing, there will be this grand military parade with President Xi um, showing off all of China's latest weapons 
in an effort to kind of tell the world how far China has come and, and to deter any um, what they see as meddling in China's affairs. And at that same time, we're expecting large protests in Hong Kong, where you'll probably see many, many um, thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people come out to um, say that their demands have not been met. Things like setting up an independent police, uh, sorry, an independent force to investigate the police. It includes uh, demands like uh, having um, these full free elections that we were talking about earlier. And so you have these two sides that are at uh, increasingly polarized positions. And I think there, it's very unlikely that um, any kind of compromise would satisfy either side. Javier, thank you so much for joining us to talk about all of this live from Beijing, I should say. Thank you very much. Thanks for, thanks for being here, and I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Um, and we'll look forward to reading your continued coverage of Hong Kong. Thank you. Take care. And now I'm thrilled to welcome Xu Shi to the show. Xu Shi is the author of 14 books, including five novels, seven collections of short fiction and essays, and one memoir. Most recent titles include This Fish is Foul, Essays of Being, from University of Nebraska Press's American Live series, Insignificance, Hong Kong Stories, uh, from Signalite Press, and the memoir Dear Hong Kong, An Elegy for a City, which is part of Penguin's Hong Kong series for the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to China. She's also editor of four anthologies of Hong Kong writing in English. She was born and raised in Hong Kong and now splits her time between the state of New York and the rest of the world. Shu, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. We're happy to have you with us. Uh, you've been writing about Hong Kong for decades, but you don't live there now. You wrote about Hong Kong in your collection Insignificance in other fiction and also in Dear Hong Kong. In This Vicious Fowl, you said, even though I drew upon my Hong Kong and Asian world for my fiction, when I lived in America, distance allowed a perspective that disappeared as soon as I returned. Now I was no longer reliant on memory or primarily inclined to an investigation of the past. Instead, I was thrust back into a present tense mode of observation, most of all, linguistically. That's a really interesting quote. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the trajectory of your moves over the course of your life and how how Ge you know, geography has shaped the way that you think about Hong Kong. Um, sure. Um, I didn't actually leave Hong Kong uh, for the first time till I was 17. So I kind of grew up there, lived there, and I went to college. But I went as a foreign student, and then I went home. So a lot of my earlier going home had to do with the fact that, well, I wasn't uh, an American citizen. You can't really stay in this country with an English degree <laughs> because nobody's going to hire you with that. Um, so I went home and worked, and then I didn't actually move the longest. And when you say been, home in this case, hmm, you mean Hong Kong, right? Hong Kong, yeah. yes. Um, and America didn't really become home until um, you know I I went back to do my uh, MFA at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in 1981. It was at that point uh, I met my um, ex-husband, who was American, and um, got married. And that actually completely changed my trajectory. But suddenly it was like, oh, well, I can stay in this country because I can work here. And um, in 92, he and I agreed to move back there because work was more lucrative back in Hong Kong. It was terrible in the U.S. at that point. New York, 
I don't know if you lived in New York, but the crime rate was dreadful at that point. It's changed a lot. But Hong Kong was very prosperous in the early 90s. It was a wonderful time to be back. So I went back for that. But then ultimately, um, I, I did get divorced eventually um, after many years of marriage. And and then I met, or rather reconnected with an old friend from New York who had been in a writer's group with me. And I, you know, he lived in New York, I lived in Hong Kong. Eventually, you know, I moved back to the States to, to be with him. But then my father died. Um, he, he died literally half a year after I moved, quote unquote, permanently back to the US. And my mother was alone. And um, I started going back and then it became more and more and eventually um, it was evident she had Alzheimer's so that meant somebody had to go and live with her. But you know it's quite interesting I, if I count the actual years I've actually lived 63% of my life in years in Hong Kong at this point in my life. <laughs> I mean, you, you I, did I, that math at I can point. think mathematically when it comes to certain things, and that's one. So in my adult life, say, say from 17 on, if you want to consider 17 and adulthood, um, I've literally lived since 24 years in Hong Kong and 24 years elsewhere, mostly in New York, but not entirely, at the East Coast in New York, but not entirely. I thought I left Hong Kong in 98, and, and then I wound up moving back in 2010, and I lived there for seven, seven and a bit years before I actually finally left permanently. And, um, you know, I, I knew some writers who were in Hong Kong around the time of um, Occupy's umbrella movement. And, and you were the director of a, of an MFA program that is no longer in Hong Kong. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what the future is for writers in that city and, and whether writers were participating, how they were participating in that and also in what's going on now? Sure. Um, you know, the program I was running was not strictly a Hong Kong program. About half of my students lived in Hong Kong and the other half came from all over Asia. It okay. was a low residency MFA, the first low residency in Asia, actually. You know, it was sort of closed for political reasons, even though the university never wanted to admit it. And the politics are interesting. It's really because I was at City University of Hong Kong, um, and it's gone very China-focused. And, you know, Hong Kong University pay the highest salaries in the world, whether any, whether you realize that or not. It's a bit of a, um, a scandal, actually, I think, um, because it's ridiculously high. So it was lucrative for me in that sense, but it was expensive. It's an expensive city. And I was trying to help look after my mother. Um, and um, one of the things that's become very apparent at that university and several others as well, these government universities, is how many mainland scholars now have positions in these universities because the pay is extremely good and it counts as a kind of international university. So that's the real politics of what's going on, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. Um, so you felt like the the Chinese government wanted there to be more professors who they could count on to agree with them. Is that what you're saying? Basically. Okay. Um, and I think certainly uh, City University was very uh, pro-China. Because the president, he's from Taiwan, which is interesting, but they were very pro-China even while I was there. And they they were systematically moving out foreigners and something like me teaching a creative writing program. You know, it's like they don't need me 
the program lasted um five, we had five cohorts we managed to you know one one a year we, we actually enrolled five cohorts so we graduated about 105 students and yes some of them were quite active uh, with occupy and uh, wrote about occupy um and uh, of course the younger students it was the undergraduates who were very involved the social science and social uh, social work students at that's at City University, I remember, were very pro-Occupy. And when you say pro-Occupy, can you define what that means in terms of Hong Kong? Yes. It meant that they, you know, they were willing to take a stand about what Occupy meant. So, for example, at um, a graduation, they would bring umbrellas and open them on stage. You know, they would, they would do the symbolic things that said, we believe in what this protest is about. Or they would be out there in, among the protesters as well and sitting there night after night, you know, rather than, you know, safely at home in their bedrooms and, and, and the rest of it. So, well, I mean, just, it was participation. My question would be like, so this is what year, and you were using the term Occupy, is, are you, is that in relationship to or connected to the Occupy Wall Street protest or is that something different? Well, I mean, sort okay. of the term, it, I mean, it's really the umbrella movement. Okay, I think so you're talking about 2014 movement. then or something yes, around. Yes, 2014. Okay. I called it Occupy because it did sort of spin off from the Wall Street Occupy um, because they also occupied the city okay. for uh, at least the three major districts in the city and, and closed down quite a bit of the city for it was you know the air was wonderful in central for a while then you know because uh, there were no cars that could get through i i thought it was a, a remarkable uh, a remarkable moment in hong kong's history it was not a very effective movement though because they couldn't get any there was no change that happened after that the government just went back to doing what it did in reading your work you know i found this there's this sympathy when you write about the umbrella movement uh, you talk about the generational split in Dear Hong Kong. You note how Occupy's umbre- umbrella revolution had, um, you know, these young people who would stand up and say, you know, we believe in democracy and older elites who were would sort of scoff at that. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I find your work so interesting is because your your love for Hong Kong is evident through your critique of it, your willingness to kind of note ways in which it is complex. It's it's, um, you know, dealing with racism and patriarchy, et cetera, and looking at it from different angles and points of view, both personal history and the way that your personal history connects to larger history. So in This Vicious Foul, you write about the popularity of your novel, Hong Kong Rose, and your own detachment from it. And you trace that to what you call, quote, I'm so interested in this idea, Hong Kong's sensibility of compromise, one that masquerades as courage or the right way to live. And you were saying that you thought Hong Kong Rose was one of your most popular books because Hong Kongers see compromise as virtuous. We were just talking to Javier Hernandez of the New York Times about what he was saying was an incredibly wide range of Hong Kongers um, involved in what's going on now. And so this movement seems much more inclusive and has somehow managed to attract the support of this wide range of people. And the people organizing seem to be pushing past compromise, like Carrie Lam has withdrawn the extradition bill, and yet the protests are still ongoing. So I'm really curious about what you think about the protests going on now, whether they surprised you, um, what you think of what's happening. The, the, the generation that is compromised is my generation, and the generation sort of about 10 years younger than me. Um, we grew up at a time when Hong Kong's future looked good. 
So you keep your head down. You don't overthrow the British government. Instead, you you, you accept this compromise of being a, a colonized citizenship. And it is not till now that young people are pushed beyond that limit. And I don't think that they can compromise anymore. I do understand. I, I don't like violence. I'm not, you know, I don't believe in violence if, if, if possible, but I do understand why they feel it's necessary. But they got the government to finally listen to them for five minutes. And I think that this fire, which is what has happened, really. But um, I just gave a, an interview the other day to um, La Repubblica, the Italian newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and, and I was asked about whether or not a political culture could evolve in Hong Kong. Because I've, I've often written about how apolitical we are, how, right. how we're much more fond of fashion and shopping and everything. And that's true. Hong Kong is very, it's a very consumerist, capitalistic society we flip contracts on mortgages and 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 housing you know that's how people got rich if you could buy enough housing you would become wealthy but this is uh, this is an awful way to run a, a a community a culture a country and it's not a country um the, the younger people are bolder they're also more educated in politics and in political science they have traveled they have seen and exposed themselves to other ideas not just western but also from the rest of asia from africa you know a, a lot of the young students they get to travel to um the one thing that the hong kong government is good in the, the universities are well funded so they get to travel to other places and and see the world and understand that you know there are other ways of thinking about what life should be um and they're not so willing just to, you know, just sacrifice, you know, become a business person or a lawyer or a doctor. And those are the only things to do. I mean, there's more to a culture and a society than that, that you should consider your freedom of speech. You shouldn't have to work around the clock. Um, you know, um, so Japanese culture, Korean culture is very popular among young people in, in, in Hong Kong uh, for, for obvious reasons, because they, they feel like they can identify with it. But they also see things like, you know, the Japanese salaryman who drops dead at his desk. Right. I don't think Hong Kong people want that. In fact, one of the things Hong Kong did very well when we, you know, went through the handover from the, under British rule to Chinese rules, we kept all our public holidays, <laughs> which we have probably more public holidays than anywhere else in the world. I think we're very close to, to Singapore, you know, we're very smart about hanging on to holidays because there is a belief that we should have some leisure time. So the, it's the young, it's the young who are willing to sacrifice. Some of them have stood up and said, we're willing to mart ourselves, they're willing to die. There have been a few suicides already. Um, it, it's sad. I, I hate to see that they feel they have no future unless they stand up and fight. And it's at a very, very big risk. I mean, if China just has to come in with tanks and they're dead. Um, China, I'm hoping, won't. But uh, who can say right now? You were uh, grew up and, and were thinking about Hong Kong at a time when the primary thing to think about was British rule and the colonial status of Hong Kong. The protesters now, the younger people, have, have grown up during a time when China was in control of Hong Kong because the handover happened in 97. And some of them are looking to the West and the and the UK or America for help in sort of establishing democratic freedom. And that's a that's a weird sort of dissonance within the within Hong Kong itself. I think I wonder if you could talk about that in some ways. 
It is a very weird distance. I, I, I understand why they're waving the American flag and the British flag, but it also makes me very sad because I know perfectly well that Britain and America, when push comes to shove, will go and make sure that they are dealing with China first. They, you know, this is just the way, way of the world. Well, you're right about um, that, in case they're curious. It is curious. the balance of power. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I think um, Hong Kong chooses to look there because where else are they going to look? South America? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Europe? Not enough of them speak European languages to do so. It's much harder for them, whereas they can look at America and Britain and these are big enough powers. And Britain, of course, is part of Hong Kong's history. So there's recognition there of what that brings. Um, I mean, I think they would, many of them could, would, would rather look to Canada if they could, but Canada is not as big a power as, as America is, you know, in the world. Um, so I think that it's sort of natural for them to, to look there. But it, it's futile. I mean, politically, it's, it, won't, it won't help them in the long run. And that's, that's what worries me a lot about the young there. Um, they have to find a solution from within. They have to be able to figure it out with the Hong Kong government. And the Hong Kong government, I'm afraid, is made up of a bunch of bureaucrats. Uh, the elite, uh, again, Hong Kong government's civil servants at the higher end are very well paid. Carrie Lam makes more than the president of the United States. I mean, consider this. It's, it's the people who protect their own, their families. They're taken care of. They can afford housing. What young person can afford housing? It's ridiculous. It's kind of like New York. I mean... Yes, too, too much very similar to New York. New York has the advantage of being an older culture. Um, it is. Uh, it has a, a history of the arts and culture that it can always go back to. Um, Hong Kong is much younger. It, it hasn't yet developed enough of its own culture and art and you know history to, to to be able to stand on that. And there isn't the money for that that will keep people in Hong Kong. People leave Hong Kong every time there's a problem. This is a, this is our history. There's always an exodus. I've, I've watched exodus from the time I was a child. I, you know, to me, what's happening now reminds me of 1967, the riots then. Because those were worker-led. Um, not young people like it is now. It's not university students, although some of the left-meaning university students were definitely involved at the time. Um, and again, it was about inequity. It was about the impossibility of, you know, unless you're born into the right family or you, you, you're part of that elite, you're not going to be, you're going to have a lousy life and you're going to always be the underclass. Those are some of the same people who are supporting the young people now, the ones who have yes. always been working class. So it's, so interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you point, you paint Hong Kong as this kind of pure example of capitalism, which has, therefore, in it a lot of flaws, if only thing that people care about is money or property values or whatnot. And yet they're fighting to maintain this particular kind of life against a government that is also interested in capitalism, just a sort of state-controlled kind of capitalism. I mean, what's the difference? It's a society that would like to see itself do well, you know, be prosperous, be able to have to make their own films, to have art, to um, engage in sports, to have people go to the Olympics. I mean, it's it's not a society that's looking to 
you know, overthrow everything. In fact, uh, Joshua Wong, who's one of the primary leaders, of course, um, he would like to see, um, he, he believes in one country, two systems. He's not looking for independence. The independence um, call is from a minority. Um, I have to say, uh, I, I do understand why they feel the way they do. I have felt that we should have fought for independence a long time ago, but we missed our chance back in the 60s. And at that time, you know, nobody was going to oppose the British. Um, but, you know, unless you overthrow the government, you're not going to be able to establish independence. So most Hong Kong people, the majority, I think, you know, probably would be content with some kind of special administrative region status like we have now, um, as long as we can have a little autonomy and we can get some, you know, self-representation, et cetera, et cetera, where, where China cuts, cuts Hong Kong a little slack. Let us be there a little different. Come on, Hong Kong's always been this political anom anomaly. And, and it, you know, that's its best hope to remain a political anomaly. In This Vicious Foul, you write about an unpublished novel of yours called Proximity, mm. which you wrote back in the 70s, and it imagines Hong Kong with a nationalistic party that wanted to secede from China. Mm -hmm. Sort of seems on topic of what we're talking about here. No one would publish it at the time. How do you look back on that book now in light of the protests, and what kind of writing do you think this protest will prompt from yourself and from others? It, it's very interesting looking back on that. It's like I knew I was right back then, but of course, who believes you? But the 70s was when Hong Kong began to change. It began to get prosperous. The 70s was when Cantonese was finally recognized as an official language in Hong Kong. Prior to that, it was only English, if you can imagine. Hmm. When I think back on that, I'm, I'm shocked very often, but that was the, that was the case. Um, so the 70s was the beginning of change, and we were beginning to see Hong Kong come of its own. It's the 70s was also when you began hearing pop songs that were very local. You know, and there's some famous ones that local people know. And this was the era, too, of Under the Lion Rock, which was a local documentary, which spoke to Hong Kong's own identity and spirit. And, and that was the beginning of a sense of a Hong Kong identity as quite separate from China. That's why I always felt it had to happen eventually that there would be people calling for independence. But it came too late. That's the way I sort of feel it. But I think now looking forward, what do you write? Well, I've been lately writing a great deal about Hong Kong because I've been commissioned like four times to write something. The novel I'm working on right now, it's a, a sort of a novella. Actually, um, I keep saying, well, it's actually about the north country of New York and fishing, you know, and ice fishing because that's, this is where I live now, way up north in New York State. But in fact, it opens in Hong Kong, so you figure what I'm really writing about at the end. I think that's, my, my work is leaning more and more towards the transnational kind of um, exist, existence in the world because I, I, I am part of that population, if you like, that doesn't belong in any one place. When we were corresponding in preparation for the interview, you mentioned that you'd been working on a new commission project related to the protests. Is that, is that yeah, right? And what can done. you tell us about that project? Well, it's an essay that I was asked by the Massachusetts Review to write and to write about specifically to reflect on the protest, but not, it, it, it wasn't a journalistic, you know, essay. Oh, I see. More, yeah. It was more of a, um, a literary, you know, reflection on it. So I call it the view from 2010. Um, because I think you can't write about what's happening now without looking a little bit 
our history, and I, I talk a little bit about the past and the present and, and sort of do that, kind of like what I did in Dear Hong Kong. I like to, to connect the past and the present. I think that's what a writer does, you know. You're an observer of society. Um, so that one is coming out in their winter issue, and I'm actually going to Amherst in October to speak and to read a little bit from that and to speak about, you know, Hong Kong and my work and things like that. Well, speaking of your writing, could you read to us a little bit from your work? Oh, sure. Um, I'll read some very short excerpts. Um, so I'll read first from uh, Dear Hong Kong, which is a, a sort of memoir that I was commissioned to write. And um, the, the way it's set up, it's written as a Dear John letter to Hong Kong. So I, I call Hong Kong HK and pretend he's like this lover I've had for a long time <laughs> and have been trying to say goodbye to forever. Um, and he's just this pain in the ass, and I'm finally <laughs> saying goodbye to him. So I'm going to read a tiny bit from, so the, the way it's structured, I, I start in the present, and then I talk about the past. And so in Chapter 6, it was called Dear HK, Zoi Gin, which is uh, the Cantonese word goodbye. It's the wrong goodbye. This Zoi Gin, or in Mandarin, it's Zai Jian, actually means see you again. So I was kind of saying, I'm not going to see you again. And the second half of that, section is um, set in 2010 where I say I returned to HK's side to live with him for the last time. And so I'll just read a tiny little excerpt from that, okay? Sure. Of this most recent return, however, 2013 proved a significant year. The year began badly. On 5th January 2013, Leung Bingguan, or as he was better known by his pen name, Yasi, died an immense loss to our local literary world. He wrote in Chinese, in Cantonese, capturing the face and soul of the city and inspired many writers here. If we could have named a poet laureate, it would have been PK, as those of us who conversed in Cantonese called him. He had a capacious mind and it was possible to talk to him about everything as he determined anything observable, doable and imaginable to be worth his consideration. HK and I, we mourned. 2013 was also the year of ridding myself of all purchase on my flight path. First, I saw my writing retreat, the South Island crib in New Zealand. Later went the flat in Tim Sajoy, originally purchased as a pied-à-terre for after my mother passed away and we no longer had a family home. A prolonged agony prevailed that year as first this, then that, and then everything else was divested from the future with HK, because that was the year I finally knew it's time to leave the city for good. Except that I couldn't. For one thing, I still had three more years on my contract with the university, and even after the MFA program was unceremoniously closed in 2015, students in my care remained, students I would not abandon unless the university forced me to do so. So that's the first little bit, and it ties back to what we were talking about, the program that I um, uh, started for the university at City University of Hong Kong. So the other short section I'll read is from my newest collection called The Suspicious Fowl, and it's from an essay called The Crying City, and this is about essentially uh, what happened during the Umbrella Movement. It was set during that time, and um, just to set it up, I have a photograph in the uh, collection which is um, a banner that was hung on one of the overpasses in Hong Kong. 
and it reads in English and Chinese. I won't read the Chinese one, but the English one is, our parents are crying for us, I am crying for the future. So this is the crying city. We cried over Occupy, we cry over Occupy. I will continue to cry over Occupy in the years to come. Our sadness, it appears, is measurable. The World Happiness Report ranks our city at 72, far behind Taiwan, 38, Singapore, 24, the United States, 15, or Switzerland, 1. At least we're ahead of China, 84, <laughs> Greece, 102, or the seriously sad nation of Togo, ranked last at 158. But I am being unfair. Hong Kong's unhappiness is not only due to Occupy, 78 days in 2014, during which my fellow citizens transformed our city, uh, our streets into a tented city to protest for a democracy that remains slippery, contentious, unresolved. By 3 p.m. on Monday, December 15th, deadline for the removal of Occupy, our streets were almost entirely cleared. We Hong Kongers obey our deadlines. We turn in homework on time and pay taxes to our special administrative region with minimal protests. In the days and months that follow, a slew of songs, photos, videos, and declarations shuddered through cyberspace, aided and abetted by the ravenous international media, starved as they always are for heroes and villains as icons for what they don't have time to digest and fully comprehend. Besides, young faces are the harbingers of universal hope, just as they were for Tiananmen 25 years earlier. Time always needs persons for the years. Even so, you had to love those invigorated, passionate young hearts as they slept night after night on asphalt, forsaking their dorm rooms or Hello Kitty bedrooms at home. As they packed up their tents, stacked their supplies, organized their departures with the same logistical efficiency that colored their occupation. Those determined visages, too young to truly know sorrow, made us cry. Oh, thank you so much. It's beautiful. I mean, it seems, speaking of past and present, it seems like those words could just as well apply to the protests that are happening now. They could today. That's the thing. I, I feel that. But, you know, I think that's the beauty of literature. It's it's a way of thinking about our world over a much longer span of time than just, say, the moment, you know? I was thinking about our conversation with Javier Hernandez as you were reading in that line, particularly about the Western media hungry for heroes and villains. And we were asking him, you know, what is it like to cover a movement that is, quote unquote, leaderless, you know, narrative, mm -hmm. or at least the conventions of Western narrative want characters. And to think about um, what kind of writing is going to come out of, you know, 10 years from now when people write about what's happening in Hong Kong now. I wonder how they're going to, to depict that kind of collective action and collective voice rising that you've spoken about so compellingly. Well, I think the collective point of view is something I've seen in literature happening, you know, more, more and more often, especially in dystopic literature, which is huge these days. Every other student, young student I get, wants to write sci-fi or speculative, I find myself reading much more of this work that I didn't usually read, and I find myself even writing speculative work now. And I do see this collective voice as something that is less Western in some way, but very Asian. I mean, Asian yeah. storytelling is much more collective, um, much more about the society and the, and the we rather than the I. 
and I think we'll see a more of a turn to the. I, I I tend to think that the the the, genera- the younger generation now, even in the West, is more of a collective than it used to be. It's not as individualistic as you know, say in the '60s, which is when I sort of came of age, when you know it was all about you know finding yourself and you know your 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 individual identity. I think it's probably a good thing. It's a little less selfish than the I generation. Well, all this makes me think I'd really like to read Proximity. <laughs> oh, well, you'll have to apply to the university, the City University of Hong Kong. They're actually, they actually have the papers. I don't have a copy of it anymore. There are two copies of it. There's one, the two versions. I wrote the first version, which is completely dystopic. Hong Kong ends up, you know, you end the epilogue is this future dystopic world where a tour guide is taking people around. Oh, and to a kind of a, a lost city like Atlantis and says, and this used to be the city of Hong Kong. Um, so, well, I, you know, by the time I rewrote it, um, by this time I gotten into my MFA program, it was kind of like, okay, got to tamp that down. It's a bit too melodramatic. So I wrote one that was a little bit closer to uh, a more social realistic kind of novel. So the second one is probably better written, but the first one was, you know, so that, that first attempt, I, left my job in Hong Kong and went to Greece to become a writer. I, so I finished that version in about three weeks or something. <laughs> so, but well, it's, I mean, hopefully somebody will read it one day. I don't know. I don't I hope I'll ever so. publish them. <laughs> I would, I would like to say, um, I would like to dare our listeners to, to race me to this, these archives and find this book and whoever, <laughs> whoever gets there first, um, give us a call at fiction, nonfiction. We would love to hear about reading this book unless we manage to get there first. Um, Shushi, thank you so much for your time, for joining us, for sharing this sort of wealth of knowledge about Hong Kong and also your tremendous body of work with us. Um, We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Our transcriptions are edited by Damian Johansson. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, and on Facebook at FNFPod, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings we talked about today. Happy reading, happy writing, happy protest, and happy activism.